and this month on the TJ Podcast, Joe and I look at the magazine which focuses on creativity. Me and Kate look forward to World of Learning and talk about burnout in the workplace. And Vinit Shah drops by to talk about his new book, Slice. But first, here's the news. So, as always, we come to the news section first. Uh, and welcome to the news section, Kate Graham of Fosway Group. How are you? Hi, John. I'm really well, thank you. Thanks for having me along again on this nice sunny day. It is indeed, but uh, with the summer often comes quite a quiet period for a lot of uh, companies in L&D and other industries. How's your summer been? Is there much to say from Fosway or what's going on? Uh, it's mostly planning this time of year for us. So um, a lot of the, you can imagine a lot of the, the corporate work slows down um, over the summer and there's obviously not the same cadence of events, etc. happening. So, um, you know, we're looking ahead to that new you know, new term sort of uh, feeling for September. Um, and then it goes kind of crazy. We go from one extreme to the other. So there's events on all sides of the Atlantic. We've got a new nine grid coming out around talent acquisition. So recruitment. Um, and what does that market look like um, alongside our annual update for talent management and HCM? systems um, and the digital learning realities research we're in planning mode for that as well that launches uh, in around November so and then loads of events coming up the learning live um, obviously online educate you know there's just it's just crazy really so yeah lots of planning so I'm enjoying the kind of the calm before the storm yes it definitely feels like that uh, TJ side as well but um, I've managed to pull out some new stories don't worry. Uh, so let's tackle the first one, which is a very uh, important subject, which I think is one of these things that uh, more businesses are waking up to. This is from a website called openaccessgovernment.org. And I have a little bit of an issue with the headline, but uh, the headline anyway is over half of employees are experiencing chronic workplace stress. So a very, very important issue. Uh, lots of businesses are understanding more about stress, about uh, workplace well-being, working in mindfulness and other uh, ways to combat these things. Um, the report from Westfield Health, that's the first alarm bell. I get a lot of press releases which are like, you know, um, tech companies talking about how mobile learning's on the up and stuff and, you know, these kind of self-fulfilling prophecies. I'm sure you know the kind of things I mean. But um, yes, but uh, there is some interesting stuff here. So Westfield Health is a private health company. Um, it might well be talking about how we have the solution to all this uh, stressful burnout, but nevertheless, we'll plough on. Uh, it highlights a sharp increase in worrying statistics, including the rise of leaveism, whereby employees work outside of contracted hours or whilst on annual leave. Another name for presenteeism, perhaps, um, although they are slightly different. So the first stat, over one in 10, 11% in brackets of employees admit to responding to calls and emails whilst on holiday. I'm saying that because that could probably be higher, to be honest. Um 36% believe their boss expects them to be on standby during annual leave. And shockingly, almost a fifth, 17% of holiday time is spent worrying about work. Um, we won't go through the whole piece, but nowhere in this can I actually find anything that relates to the headline of over half of employees are experiencing work chronic workplace stress. We've got 48%, but uh, that's not over half, is it? But nevertheless, Kate, what do you think about this? Workplace stress, is it is it on the rise? And is being able to combat it on the rise? I think your points around the statistics are um, valid uh, for, for a start. I mean, having just been on uh, a couple of holidays, I think so much of this comes down to 
the pressure that people put on themselves as much as the the companies put on them. Um, so for me, I did reply to um, one email on on my second holiday, um, but it was just a very quick question and it was very easy to reply. But I went away with the mindset of, you know, I work hard all year and and this is my holiday, and so I think a lot of the time we do put that pressure on ourselves but what I'm hearing about as I say you know the younger generation she says rapidly approaching her 40th birthday um is that their work-life balance is a bigger issue for you know millennials and um gen z coming into the the workplace and they don't you know they've got other things that they want to be getting on with they want to work really hard while they're at work but, you know, they want to finish by six o'clock and then they want to go to their yoga class or they want to go and see their friends. And so I think they've seen a lot of these these things about kind of burnout and this whole Silicon Valley myth of, you know, rise and grind and, you know, staying locked in and eating pizza at work and staying till midnight. I think that's kind of been proven to all be a bit of a, a fallacy, really, or a bit of a false economy in terms of people's productiveness and effectiveness. I don't have any stats to hand on that, but it, it seems like there has been quite a backlash to all of that. So I think it is still a problem, obviously, for lots of people. But I, I do sense there's a, a shift from the individuals um, involved, but also companies, whether they want to or not, are having to pay more attention uh, to people's well-being. Yeah, it's a, that is a really good point, actually, about putting it on yourself and you could counter that by saying well you put it on yourself because that's the kind of culture is expected you of you in the culture and even though you feel like it it may be you putting it on yourself it's actually been ingrained in you through uh, I guess um, institutionalized uh, work culture but maybe this is where we have to talk about the responsibility of line managers and the responsibility of the onboarding process to say look we don't expect you to do this we don't expect you to you know answer your emails all the time be uh kind of on 24 7 because it is really important and i think in the long term i don't think we're anywhere near there wherever there is but i don't think we're in in the, the perfect place yet with this but it is getting better um all the, the understanding of it is getting better whether or not the um the actual levels of workplace stress are or not is there to be seen but carry on so does the future of work though you know does it I mean I'm very lucky I work for an organization we work virtually very flexible and you know something that I've learned is to better manage the peaks and troughs because as as I mentioned earlier we are heading into a massive peak in the autumn and I will be working outside my hours and you know and that because there's certain deadlines and things that will demand that but at other times, you know, I'm, I've got much better. We've talked about this before, about downing tools at lunchtime and going for a walk, you know, regardless of how busy I am, because actually that makes me better. That makes me perform better in the afternoon if I've had that, you know, half an hour or whatever walking around the park. So I, I think there's something for me around, you know, this whole kind of working culture. If you're a knowledge worker and you have to work nine to five, you know, is that is that really the best getting the best out of people like sure if you work in a shop or you know maybe in a factory or some of the you know customer facing type roles if you're a support engineer you know you you have to be on call during kind of core hours but is there something to say that the future of work is 
allows people to manage their own peaks and troughs and their productivity and therefore their stress in a much more flexible way. Uh, you know, that's something that I would like to see. I mean, how you do that, manage that at scale in some large companies, I, I think is obviously a challenge. But I, I have to hope that that's something that is going to happen one day. On to the next story uh, from Forbes. Uh, Forbes published a lot of content around this and they're using a term which I don't really like, but uh, it's a good story. For megatrends, why are they not just trends? For megatrends reshaping global learning. So this is actually, this is in their education section. So it actually takes on, it's probably most relevant to higher education, but something that we've tried to do at TJ recently is to kind of join up those dots a little bit and we've published more apprenticeship content than we used to and all that sort of thing and realise that it is one continuous thing from school to work or at least it should be and you know that's when we encounter these gaps but anyway so so the piece is about four trends which are kind of changing uh, the learning paradigm hopefully the first one being new goals now this is my this is what uh this point is the one that I think is most interesting. And it says there is a global reconsideration of learning goals and quote unquote graduate profiles based on the new economy. And then in brackets, this is what the World Economic Forum calls the fourth industrial revolution. So we're broadly talking about automation, AI, et cetera, et cetera. Um, there are lots of folks asking what should graduates know and be able to do? So it goes on, it references a couple of papers, um, Purdue Polytechnic um, and other foundation, uh, sorry, other found foundations, but the essential thing here is, it, is that it's talking about, I think there might actually be a movement within higher education to realise that there is a proper skills gap between uh, graduates being work ready and then taking their place in the business community. What do you think? Yes, that's what this says to me. And it's also about what those skills within that business mindset maybe look like. I did a business degree. I spent a year in industry and things like presenting, we were doing from the first year onwards, um, working in a team, um, building, you know, pretend businesses and doing simulations and things like that. So we had, I had quite a lot of that because of the nature of the, the degree that I did. Um, and I'm not suggesting if you're studying fine art that you, <laughs> you necessarily have to have to pull in those things but you hear a lot about things like um skills like critical thinking for example um and you know interpreting the stats we were just talking about in the previous news item so not taking things as read and being able to you know work like you say work as a team it talks about leadership in the article there so yeah that i just think that's really that's all very positive um and just very pragmatic and I would say that it's not just higher education that needs to be thinking about these things, it's schools as well. Yeah, definitely. Um, second point, active learning. Yay! <laughs> this, is, this is exciting. Yeah. But it's exciting to see that, that term used in such a mainstream publication, I think. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Uh, I, mean, I mean, what they mean by active learning here is uh, a global trend towards combinations of personalised and project-based learning. Individualised skill building has been bolstered by adaptive and small group instruction. This all sounds very positive, I think. Yeah, and I think it talks about um, being more learner-centric, um, you know, open-ended challenges, actually getting people to experience things so they're not just learning by rote, they're going away and doing things. You know, this is some of the stuff that we talk about that needs to happen in corporate education as well. Um, and you know just rather than sit I mean we've all been there sitting in a lecture falling asleep 
uh, you know what's the, you know the complete opposite of being an active learner so i i just think this is great yeah definitely and the third one's just as great competency there is a global shift from seat time to show what you know and progress on demonstrated mastery it's a complex shift that will take a few decades to play out <laughs> just throw that line away as new tools strategies and measures are developed it's moving most quickly around dynamic job clusters where an academic pedigree matters less than what you can do it's all pointing in a very positive direction uh, yeah, I mean, we talk about this. Um, Fosway has uh, something we call our plasma learning cycle. And, you know, very few people talk, really talk about mastery, you know, but how, and how do you master something? I mean, you've got um, uh, Matthew Saeed, you know, talks about his 10,000 hours of, uh, you know, practice, table tennis practice. Um, and it's not necessarily that it that it takes that, but it, there is something there around, you know, actual practice. Like you can hear something or read something and learn learn that in inverted commas, but it doesn't necessarily mean that you can actually do it. So I think that show what you know, again, just seems like a really positive uh, mega trend, as they call it. But again, something that definitely rolls over into the corporate learning space. And number four, integrated supports. Tony Barton of Relay Graduate School C- Quote, a bright future in which students' differences are celebrated, their unique needs are met, and the entire system is geared towards advancing students' academic and socio-emotional growth. I hope so. Uh, in the meantime, the growth of integrated support systems is helping to make our inherited system of age cohorts work better for more students. Yeah, it's um, it's a great piece. We'll link to it in the, uh, in the, show, in the show notes of the podcast. But uh, what do you think about that last point, Kate? Yeah, I mean, my brother is um, dyslexic and dyspraxic. Um, so he was statemented from a very early age, which meant that he actually got the attention and the time that he needed throughout his education. Um, but there are tons of people that fall through the cracks. Um, and, you know, it, it, it again sits in the same bucket for me as uh, personalization, which AI is obviously, you know, powering a lot of and getting away from that sheep dip approach. Because there's nothing to say that a person couldn't be sitting in a classroom in a company. Yes, they might be skilled enough to do their job, but it doesn't mean that they don't have, you know, some specific requirements. You know, we talk a lot about the accessibility of things like digital learning, but, you know, there are other aspects and other challenges that people need to overcome. So that nature of being, you know, creating personalised, tailored experiences in learning is, yeah, it's really important. Okay, so on to our last quick news item. Uh, we're going to talk about World of Learning. Uh, World of Learning takes place this year on the 15th and 16th of October at the NEC in Birmingham. As always, this year, the keynote is Tom Cheesewright, Applied Futurist. He will open the conference with a keynote presentation entitled L&D 2030, Surviving a High Frequency Change Environment. Kate, what do you think L&D is going to look like in 2030? Well, it feels like we've only just stopped talking about L&D 2020. So, you know, it's just just moving the needle backwards, isn't it, all the time? I think that the kind of the word surviving is an interesting one. Uh, You know, I've seen quite a lot of discussion recently about, you know, do we even need an L&D department in organisations today? I mean, invariably, usually the answer is yes, although I'm usually looking at it from a a, a, a biased audience in terms of the discussion. But yeah, change is the new normal or change is the new constant or or whatever the, the kind of the cliche is. And 
you know, being more agile is a trend that, like we at Fosway have seen, um, is a big, it's a big driver. A lot more teams are trying to be more agile in their organisations and keep up with that pace of change. Um, and that whole notion of, oh, something's happening in the organisation, we'll give the L&D team a six-month project to go away and, you know, create some content and, you know, maybe buy a system to run it on and da-da-da-da-da, all of those things, you know, by the time you've done all of that, the change has probably happened and the next things come along. So that that need to kind of be more agile and survive, as it says, in a rather pessimistic way, um, is is pretty accurate. Um, I'm always a bit... I'm always a bit skeptical about the whole kind of futurist piece that they're not my favorite type of speakers if I'm honest I prefer things that are a bit more grounded in reality um but it's a definite it's a definite pressure you know to to be able to keep up with the pace of change just in terms of the technology you know people's expectations of the tools and systems that they use now are driven by what they use outside work and if they go in and use something that's clunky and you know creates a crap user experience that they can't use on their phones or whatever it is you know that's just not good enough anymore so you know pressure is definitely on i kind of agree when when you talk about well you're you're scathing opinion of futurists but i i it's i think the place for them is in the keynote you know if if anywhere because it gives this sort of a an exciting, futuristic, forward-thinking look at what could be. And then in the other sessions at uh, World of Learning and other events, you'll, you'll find the more practical things and case studies and where you can kind of put these things to action. But I know what you mean. It is uh, it is difficult to predict the future. And, and uh, yeah, surviving is maybe an unfortunate uh, word to use because um, hopefully that won't be the case. Or is, you know, or, or is that very deliberate? You know, I mean, I would be interested to understand as somebody who, you know, writes a lot of these kind of session things, I would be interested to understand his, his thought process because, it, you know, how deliberate was that um, as a choice of word or is it just unfortunate? Because hmm. as I say, there is a lot of debate around around that that I see on, on LinkedIn and, and other social networks and blogs and things, you know, do, do organisations even need L&D? Um, couldn't this be just be done by internal comms, for example, blah, blah, blah. Um, so I think it is it is quite timely in terms of the debate. Um, but yes, you know, obviously the, the hope is that, you know, not just to survive, but thrive, right? Indeed, indeed. Okay, well, that was this week's news. Thanks, Kate. Thank you. Hi, TJs. So now it's time to focus on the magazine. I am Joe Cook, the deputy editor. And of course, I'm here with our lovely, fabulous podcast host, John. What caught your eye in the magazine this month? Uh, well, plenty caught my eye this month. The, the topic is creativity and innovation. So we've got loads of really good articles that kind of focus on the good and the bad, let's be honest, of, of uh, creativity. So there's some great uh, features about how to be creative but also and very much as importantly I think how to deal with mistakes which is a, a kind of a, a, a crucial part of the journey along into being creative you know you, you've, you've got to embrace those those missteps or, or avenues that might not go anywhere and that sort of thing and the magazine covers it really really well this month kicking off with Debbie's leader and I think the best thing about her piece is that she says well she she sums up the dichotomy of being creative which is that the more you think about being creative sometimes the harder it is almost like a kind of 
writer's block with, without writing anything down. What do you think about that, Joe? Yeah, completely agree. And I know when I write my TJ column every month that if I don't have the idea in my head, I can't write it. And that blank page just sits there. The cursor starts flashing at me and I just start writing rubbish, quite frankly. Um, but I need the idea. I need that spark. I need the situation or the report or the bit of research or whatever it is to spark a thought. And that's the creativity and then that's when I can write my column. And I think the same goes for whether I'm working in, you know, developing my training, writing an email to a client, a brochure, or any kind of creative endeavor outside of work as well. You need that bit of spark. And if you overthink it, it might go a bit too far the other way. So here's a free strategy for uh, TJ listeners uh, that I did do religiously for a while and then kind of it, it sort of fell away, which I'm a little bit uh, annoyed about. But the, another key to being creative, don't be too hard on yourself as well. If it, if it doesn't, it's almost as much about if you stop doing something, are you going to beat yourself up and stop being creative? Are you going to bounce back and try something else? Mm-hmm. But something that I did do for a while, which I know that a lot of writers and other creative people do, is something called the morning pages. Have you heard about the morning pages? Is this a little bit like the wild writing idea? I think so. It sounds similar. So the morning pages is uh, three pages of long form, free associative writing that you do every morning is the first thing that you do before you start work. And it was developed by um, a writer, a screenwriter and an author called Julia Cameron in the late 70s, early 80s. And I know loads of, not personally, but I, I, I know of loads of writers who do it every day and you just write about anything. And that kind of almost, it's like a brain dump. It's like a uh, kind of dreaming awake almost that you you get you get rid of what you've been thinking about and you just get in the in the habit of writing already to the, at the start of the day and I did do it for a while and it was quite useful but it is quite a task every morning and I guess if you're writing for a living then uh, you'd be into it but it is quite difficult and I think it's about it's a bit like warming up or stretching isn't it if you're an athlete um, or doing something physical and wild writing I don't know a lot about it but it's a similar concept in that you just write whatever comes to mind so it's not necessarily three pages every morning before work but you just write and write and write and don't judge what's there Um, I've been watching old episodes of portrait artists of the year on Sky Arts And a lot of the time when people are are starting to do a portrait of someone, they do sketches first. So it could be pencil, charcoal, whatever. It might be one detailed sketch. It might be three or four sketches, sometimes of hands or face or nose. And and they liken that to warming up as well. And I think that's similar to your, your writing that you're talking about. It's getting into the zone of what you're doing as well as focusing on Um, the different parts in this case of the portrait but with the writing it's almost like getting your fingers warmed up getting your brain in a a place for writing and unblocking that creativity so I found that really interesting yeah definitely we could talk about this all day but in the interest of uh, covering most of the mag I think we have to move on Um, so Donald Taylor's column talks about uh, metrics we kind of deviate from creativity here and talk about performance and not learning essentially the key quote uh in don's feature is the testing and i really like this the testing of knowledge and skills is so familiar that it can bring with it an illusion of completeness the sense that this is all we need to do it's very far from that it's just one way to measure some of the outcomes of training and not of learning in general uh, and i think that's very important that training isn't the start training to, training may not even factor into it as we uh, heard recently in a webinar but we'll talk about that later uh yeah jo, what did you think of uh, don's piece joe 
Loved it. And he makes the great point that we actually can't measure learning because we don't know it's happening because it's an internal process. So therefore, the only thing we can focus on is somebody's performance. And, and that is absolutely key to what we should be focusing on uh, from a business perspective, from a training and learning and development perspective. Couldn't agree more. On the opposite page to that, we have Kirk Looks. Uh, Joe, were you feeling revolutionary this month? <laughs> no, I was feeling evolutionary this <laughs> month, which is kind of the point I make in the column. Uh, Christina Gad has a LinkedIn group uh, called the L&D Revolution. And uh, she asks, what are you doing that's revolutionary this week? And I was sort of reflecting on that, going back to that spark for creativity. That was my spark for my column. And I was thinking, well, I'm not doing anything revolutionary. I'm not doing anything that's massively, amazingly different and out there. But it's an iterative process. And basically, it's kind of a point that actually both things are important. Yeah, I, I, from my perspective, reading your piece, I, I don't feel like you have to be revolutionary or, uh, or evil. Well, you try to be evolutionary if you can for most of uh, your working day or working week. But sometimes it just doesn't happen in it. And... But these things and these these little tweaks to make things to make your processes better can come when you don't expect them, and that plays into creativity too. You know, you uh, you'll, you'll be doing something completely different. The, the idea of diffuse thinking, where you think about something for too long, and maybe it takes a walk around the park to unlock that and think about something else. So, so you know, let it come to you. Essentially, that's what I think. Yeah. And I think it's, it's making sure you have time for all of those things uh, is what makes creativity and iterative and therefore sometimes revolutionary work important. And something I didn't pick up on in the article too much is that also what's an evolution for one person could be a revolution for someone else. So I make that point, but don't go into it that much. And I think sometimes, you know, we were chatting before the podcast about people's reactions to things on social media which can sometimes be quite harsh and sometimes you know if somebody posts up I've done this it's a revolution for somebody else it's like business is normal what's going on um, and denigrates them but it's all about the journey that you're on and where you started and where you're going and, and stuff like that so I think that's important Indeed. On the facing page, we've got Liggy Webb who talks about burnout. So uh, in the news section, me and Kate have uh, already talked about uh, um, a piece from a feature from Open Access Government, which, uh, so we're not going to talk about it for too long, but uh, the headline was that over half of employees are experiencing chronic workplace stress, wow. uh, which is obviously quite a shocking statistic. And so almost to counter that, we've got a piece from Liggy about how to avoid burnout, which is good. Uh, the five ways of not the five ways, but, but some, some ways you can avoid burnout. Uh, replenish yourself, set healthy boundaries, practice mindfulness, unplug yourself and sleep well. And I think that the last one about sleeping well is something that we're hearing more about, that the idea of, you know, wor you know workaholic, workaholism, and um, I've just made that up, and uh, people not getting enough sleep and spending too much time at the desk is not good for your long-term health, and it's not good for the long-term business, I don't think. No, not at all. I really like uh, Guy Bloom's piece on innovation from a culture of confidence, all about basically unlocking ideas from people in your business. And I didn't just like it because there's a picture of a light bulb on the page. Are you sure? Mm, maybe a little bit. <laughs> from, from that piece, I really like in the summary section where he says, um, and this is, this is great, and it also plays a little bit into what you said in your piece, Jay, 
everything has been an innovation before it existed. Someone else had to invent uh, to innovate it. So, like what you're saying, where there's a there's a light bulb moment for 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 one person, it's uh, business as usual for someone else. So, so what we now come to accept as a great work process, one day in the past for, was a total revolutionary idea for someone. Yeah, absolutely. And to continue the light bulb theme, we've got another light bulb on the following page for making the magic happen. Uh, Chris Barrows Brown conjures up 10 steps to help you spark your best ideas. And there's things like sleep on it. So going back to the sleep being important and the diffuse thinking, uh, also talking about it, doodling and failing. And I think, you know, that's something we pointed out right at the beginning. How many times have we done something, John, for TJ? And quite frankly, it's been a failure, but we've learned from it. Never, Joe, never. Oh, sorry, sorry. I forgot. I'm not towing the company line there. <laughs> the, the, the piece on the following page uh, is kind of the next stage on from that, which is about, which is entitled, Why Don't We Learn From Mistakes? And I've published it online as well. And it uh, gives some good examples, British Rail being one, about, how to investigate mistakes, uh, L&D's part in that, and what you can do after that. So, um, yeah, at the top of this, uh, as I said, mistakes are a very important part of not just creativity, but kind of business evolution anyway. Mm. Yep. Uh, so on the next page, we have Gateway to Government, and we have former MP Hugh Edwards uh, reflecting on committees and influential and high-profile um, committees at that. Yes, the Gateway to Government piece is uh, it, it's our link-up with Dodds Training, which is another part of uh, Dodds Group who own TJ, and it gives us a, an interesting perspective on uh, training within government. On the two, two articles after that, we talk about open badges. So open badges were, how long have they been around, Joe, roughly? A while. <laughs> That's a very specific amount of time. Oh, yes. So a while ago, um, yeah, open badges were kind of developed and um, then they kind of fell away a bit. But So it's interesting to see this piece from uh, Robert Stewart about how it's working in Scotland's social services and the importance of open badges. It's good to see that, uh, you know, in, in certain industries, there's, there's uh, still an appetite for them. And uh, we've also got something from Rachel Lanham, We're exploring the extraordinary impact of virtual reality. Now, some people will be saying this is still a technology that's yet to come and yet to have its, uh, have its moment. But uh, there's a nice quote here, VR business training programs can reduce onboarding times by as much as 50%. It's all about the right tech in the right place. And some of it can be cheap. Some of it's more expensive. But I like that we're exploring the idea of the tech and what you can do. Yeah, and on that subject, we are, TJ is involved in an event uh, called AR and VR in the Public Sector, which is happening on the 10th of September. So we are media partners for that and uh, possibly uh, having a speaking role as well. So uh, check out the website, which is vrpublicsector.co.uk for more. Excellent. Looking forward to that. And, uh, and what's coming up at the end of the magazine, John? Well, to round out the magazine, we've got Henry Stewart talking about innovation. This is very typically uh, a typical Henry piece, which I really love. It's a real positive end to close the magazine. And he talks about, uh, funnily enough, kind of throwing out the rule book to encourage innovation, which is, uh, which is another, well, another sort of counterintuitive uh, look at uh, how to innovate in business from Henry, which is great. All good stuff as always. And to get all this great premium content and insight, Joe, uh, I'm going to ask you what we do because I always forget the script. <laughs>
so come on script in my head uh, you can go to trainingjournal.com and you can see all of our stuff for free that's there uh, including webinars which we'll come to in a moment but you can also see our online magazines they are unlocked after three months but if you want to read the magazines first you can do that digitally and you can also subscribe to the paper magazine as well Marvellous. So, John, let's chat webinars. Uh, so, we have our rebranded TJ Talks webinar. So, you can look on Twitter, hash TJ Talks, for some learning nuggets. And we had one yesterday with Paul Matthews. We had a little bit of a tweaking and some issues behind the scenes with the times and the time zone. So, huge apologies about that. Really sorry. All our webinars now are 12.30 p.m. UK local time uh, for half an hour. So it's lunchtime UK time. What did you take away from the Paul Matthews conversation about what do we give managers what they want or what they need? It was brilliant. Paul's always a brilliant speaker. Uh, yeah, this was yesterday, Tuesday, 13th of August, as you said, 12.30. God knows why the various technologies we use don't understand BST and GMT, but they're always going to be whatever time it is in the UK, 12.30, these webinars, for half an hour. We run two a month now. Yesterday's was Paul's about, um, as you said, about do we give them what we, they want or need? And Paul made the good point that you have to give them what they want. Mm -hmm. uh, otherwise, they're not going to uh, be interested in it and then they'll, they'll reject it. But what they want has to also be what they need. So I think the, the crux of what he was saying is that there needs to be more of an investigative element to, to, what, to, to how L&D engages with the business. Uh, and then... And he, and he also talks a lot about integrity, which I thought was interesting about, mm. you know, the, the, the need to be heard is based on how much integrity the L&D department has. And uh, he talked briefly about sort of strategies to uh, improve that. Uh, what did you think, Joe? Loved it. Well, as you say, Paul is always good value for money. He is putting together a book on this subject as well. And, and his books are absolutely great, full of loads of good information, good research. And, and I think the conversation about taking that consultative approach, building up that rapport and getting the, um, oh, what's the word, John? Uh, reputation, I guess, with the business is is really important uh, so you can go and have a look on our youtube channel for that and if you go to trainingjournal.com click webinars or you can go and find the recording links from there so what we've got coming up later this month on tuesday 27th of august at 12 30 uk local time uh we have the fabulous glorious lovely laura overton previously of towards maturity and she'll be discussing culture what are you looking forward to about that one john yeah, uh, culture is, I've said this quite a few times, but I'm going to say it again. Um, when I publish articles online, invariably, whatever the exact topic of, uh, you know, the, the, the kind of thrust of discussion in the, in the feature or opinion piece is, I quite often tag them with culture. And this is because so much of it is about culture. L&D, successful L&D initiatives are about culture. Successful organisations have a great culture. So it's a very, very, very wide-ranging topic. But someone like Laura Overton, with a ridiculous amount of experience uh, in all sorts of businesses over the years from, you know, multiple industries and sizes, is going to be, a, you know, the perfect person to talk about what makes a good culture and, and uh, how people can improve that. Yeah, really looking forward to that. So go and register for that one. That's coming up soon. 
Well, hello there, TJs. It's John here. I recently talked to Vinit Shah, uh, something of a sales expert, about his new book, which is called Slice. Uh, we talked about his motivations for writing the book. We talked about negative habits in work. Uh, we talked about diverse teams and sales leaders and personal development tools. So sit back and enjoy. Let's start with motivations. What, what were the motivations for you writing this book? John, thank you. Thank you for having me. And um, yeah, my motivations, I mean, several reasons as to why I actually wrote the book. First and foremost, I set up my own business about 18 months ago. That was after spending 20 years um, trying to climb the corporate ladder. And in every conversation that I initially had with prospects and um, individuals that I knew, I was referring to themes that I was very passionate about. Now, what I found was that I didn't have a systematic approach in terms of how I was actually talking through some of these themes and topics that I was passionate about. I know that I had to document all of them. And I, at that moment, I said, what's the best thing that I can do? So I evaluated a few things in terms of should I do coaching cards? Should I um, just catalog all of my content, catalog all of my ideas? And I thought the best thing to do after speaking to, to several individuals was actually to try and write a book. Uh, so I went about the process. I spoke to one of my colleagues. He put me in touch with a coach um, and I started doing that uh, in terms of um, writing the book. Um, the other thing is I've always been passionate about sharing, um, you know, and, and I feel that anything that can help individuals is a great thing. So, so again, it, it aligned with the values that I have and the type of things that I'm looking to do because, you know, knowledge should absolutely be shared. And if it's, if the messages and the content that I am passionate about are going to resonate with other people, I thought I'm absolutely up for this. So um, that, that was the real motivation. You talk a bit in the book about negative habits and they can be very ingrained. So how, so how do you think business people go about getting to the roots of these habits and kind of unraveling these for the better? Good question. Firstly, I, I think it's about, or I believe it's about understanding and differentiating between what positive and negative habits are. And, and more importantly, which habits are actually helping you towards achieving your, your vision, goals, objectives, etc. Um, you know, if you wake up in the morning, uh, sorry, if you, if you go to sleep one evening and say, right, tomorrow morning, I'm going to give up chocolate. The likelihood is next morning when you wake up, you're probably unlikely to give up chocolate. You just haven't planned for it. Um, in addition to that, you need to consider the subconscious and the conscious routines that have become habits over time. Lots of individuals over, you know, I've spoken to identify habits that aren't serving them, but they're not able uh, to see through those changes because they implemented the right strategy, the right plan. They haven't thought through how they're going to go through that process of forming a new habit. Um, as part of my research, one of the things that, that I did was um, I, I looked at a study that was uh, conducted by a professor at the University College of London, uh, a lady by the name of Philippa Lally. Uh, she identified the time it takes to actually form a new habit. Um, so it can be anything from 18 days to 254 days. So if you want to change a habit, that's the amount of time that you sometimes need to, to consider um, it may take to, to actually form that new habit. Um, you need to, of course, evaluate why those habits actually exist in the first place. Um, in the book as well, I, I actually use a, a couple of real life examples. One was myself um, wanting to, to reduce my intake of refined sugar. Um, now, if I just tried to actually make that change 
off the bat, I don't think that, that I would have succeeded. What I did is I actually started a food diary and I started actually monitoring how much refined sugar I was eating. I know that refined sugar has an impact on concentration um, and, and it's just bad for your health generally. So, so by actually keeping that food diary, I was able to track and monitor how much I was having. I then went on to actually start reviewing what my change strategy was going to be. Um, and in doing so, I started to swap certain foods out. Um, I kept on consistently evaluating what I was going to do, when I was going to do it, and how I was going to do it. Um, and, and that whole planning phase is so, so important. Um, a lot of business people, you know, in the business context, they know what they've got to change, but they don't necessarily go through that planning phase as well as they should have done. Uh, I mean, you and, and I link all of this back to, to commitment, desire, for improvement, you know, knowing the new habits that you want to, to create. Um, give you another example it, it, from a business context. It's about giving feedback. Most managers, new managers especially, want to provide positive feedback to their staff members. The biggest change that they, they, they need to make sometimes is actually to take a step back because they, they want to, to be positive in front of their teams. However, they sometimes deliver that message in the wrong way. So, so one thing that I experienced, which I thought was phenomenal, was changing the word uh, but when you're giving feedback and replacing it with and. Um, so normally when you're giving feedback, you'd start off the conversation and say, um, you've done X, Y, and Z really, really well, but, and, and typically the individual that you're giving feedback to is always waiting for the but. They actually forget everything that you've said before using that word but. If you replace the but with an and, the reaction that you get from your your uh, staff member is phenomenal, uh, and I encourage individuals to try it because it really, really does does work. Um, again, the other the other thing I'd say on on this is that um, negative habits happen because of layering. Something what I define as as layering over time, because bad habits are formed through a lack of understanding, motivation, and and probably an, an in, inability to see tangible results. Um, more often than not, the bad habit will probably be tried to a trigger, which activates a, an automated response, um, you know, which you're urged to repeat an action on the habit. So, so a great example of this is every time you pick up your phone, that's the trigger. You check whether or not you received messages. That's, that's your habit. So many people do that constantly. So, so you have to unravel this habitual programming that's happened over time um, and allow people to understand its impact. Um, and and I, me personally, I think that too many people are focused on short-term results. You know, if it's going to take you up to nine months to, for that new habit to, to be formed, um, you've got to take the appropriate amount of time to plan it through, to review it, um, and, and to make sure that, that you're willing to see it through. Um, you know, conditioning, retraining, just constantly kind of evaluating, actually, is it working? What else do I need to consider changing during that cha process as well? Another thing that's... Uh very important for sales teams and uh, I guess the future of the workforce is uh, diversity and we talk a bit about this as well so why do you think diverse networks and teams are so important to sales leaders and uh, how are individuals able to uh, voice all the concerns to them so I'm going to answer this question the other way around I actually think that uh, I, I believe um that the more individuals within your team that can share their their concerns, the more comfortable they are. If you create that cultural environment of openness, 
um, where individuals do feel that they're able to share their concerns and talk openly, you're going to be able to understand a lot more about the element, the issues that are stopping them from carrying out certain activities or tasks that are going to support and help the business um, and the team ultimately achieve their objectives. Now, creating that environment is hugely important because when people share what's stopping them from doing something, you start being able to actually um, to, to, to help them get over those issues. A good example of this in a, in a sales environment is um, objection handling. You know, the business might be facing a competitive threat, a business threat. If in that moment, the salesperson doesn't understand why certain changes are going to be made, when they're talking to customers, they may not be able to articulate the impact of that change in the best possible way. So the better you're able to understand what's stopping them, what's holding them back, and, and, and kind of tweak the responses that they need to provide to the customer, um, the better the chance of success. And, and, and actually, you're also doing it in that moment when it's going to have the most impact because that's what the salesperson is concerned about and worried about at that time. Now, linked to that is having diverse networks. And, you know, why are they so important? Well, the simple reason is because we all have a bias. We, whether we like it or not, we all have a certain bias that makes us focus on certain things or see certain things from a certain point of view. What having a diverse network does is actually it challenges your own thinking. So, so again, use an example uh, in my in, in from my own working career. Whenever I was developing a solution or working on a new product concept or anything like that, I would go to the person that was the complete opposite of me in my team to ask them what they thought about the idea. Because nine out of 10 times, they would tell me something that I hadn't thought about. That's just one example. In the same way, uh, culture, you know, the amount of different cultures that, that we work with and, and we are um, interacting with, each culture views things in a very, very different way. So the more diverse your network, the more opinions, the more attitudes that you're going to be able to, to take account of when you're developing solutions or you're building a proposition. Now, another really good example here is, is recruitment. When you're recruiting people, well, actually, a lot of people have a bias that, that they will typically try and recruit someone that they like. Someone, I'm saying, I'm not saying that's not important, but it's also, you need to balance that. Don't recruit someone who is exactly like you. You've got to start thinking about actually what, what complementary skills the person that you're recruiting is going to bring to the business, to your team, um, to what you need. Because you've got a natural way of thinking. You need someone or you need individuals around you that are going to challenge that thought process. They're going to actually come at things from a, a different perspective. I, I, me, my own working career, I started out very process-orientated. Um, closer now, I'm a much more people-orientated um, person. So I can balance process and people. Um, however, I know that, that you know when I speak to an expert in, an, in any field, um, they're able to add so much more value and depth um, in terms of the conversations. And, and that's ultimately what it is. Um, so, so the more diverse your network, the more people that you have surrounding yourself that, that are different, they just think in a different way, uh, the better, I think, the, the strategies, the solutions, et cetera, that you will develop. Um, so, yeah. So to uh, build on the idea of strategies, uh, I'm coming to a final question, which is um, a top three that we sometimes like to do. What are your top three strategies or tools for personal development continuing professional development and personal development um that uh, we could use in the workplace well wow, that's a that's a it's a it's a good question and it's a really really important question so 
I'll use my own personal example again and, and, and um, something that I'm really passionate about. So for me personally, where my personal development accelerated and went at a completely new pace was when I committed to the personal and professional vision that I wanted for myself. Once you're able to identify and commit to that vision of where you want to see yourself, everything starts working in a different way. Every decision that you make, you start evaluating against that vision. Is it going to help you to achieve that vision? If it isn't, you've got to ask yourself, is it the right opportunity or right thing for you to do in that moment? If it isn't, it's worth taking a step back. It's worth saying, you know what, it's a good idea, but it's maybe not the right thing for you. Um, don't just take on someone else's vision and, and, and try and actually adapt that to your own. Make sure that everything that you are doing is supporting the attainment of that personal or professional vision that you have for yourself. That, that's the first thing. Um, linked to that is, is um, understanding what, what I classify as understanding different perspectives. So it's, it's similar to having diverse networks, but this is a, a, a little bit more um, detailed. So it's points of view. I've already spoken about bias, but the more points of view that you can consider, the better you will become. Um, I, I have a, 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 if you imagine a child, when a child draws a picture, um, there's a great story that I read once where uh, a parenting expert said that, you know, you should never, ever tell the child what that drawing is. You should always ask the child, what does that drawing mean to them? Because you want them to expand their, you know, you don't want them to limit what their thought process is. So understanding as many perspectives is a huge, huge, important thing that I think um, helps with personal development. The more people you talk to, the more people that, that share their ideas, their thoughts on a particular topic, it will help you understand why they're thinking about things in a different way and what you haven't considered, which you can start thinking about as well. Um, can I, just one other thing to add to that, uh, and I'm very, this is, this is something that I try and do. I know I've already, I've already used the term I think a couple of times, but where I can, I try and actually stop myself using that term I think. Because every time you use that term, you're actually making an assumption. So rather than using the term I think, ask another question. And that question, asking that question will help you develop the perspective from a different point of view. And uh, I mean, the final strategy, it, it's my favorite quote. Uh, a lot of people um, in my working life will remember me for this. It's, it's don't negotiate with yourself. Um, and what I'm trying to say is, is don't accept a standard that is lower than the expectation that you have of yourself. Um, if you're going to negotiate with yourself on something that is passionate, that you're passionate about, that you really want to achieve, well, what else are you going to negotiate on? So, you know, don't take second best. Challenge yourself, question yourself. Um, and, and ultimately, it's through that reflective process of you continuously assessing yourself, reviewing what you're saying, what, how you're saying it, when you're saying it, and trying to make those small tweaks all the time um, and setting that reflex. That's, I think, key to, to personal development success. This doesn't have to be a one-time exercise. You've got to continuously be doing this all the time. So having that habit of doing it every day, spending some time, half an hour, just reflecting, reviewing, and saying, what can I do differently? Asking those questions of yourself, I think, is, is hugely key. Well, Vinny, the, uh, the book's out now. Slice is out through uh, Panoma Press. Is that right? It, it certainly is. Thanks for talking to TJ today, and good luck with it. Thank you very much, John. Appreciate it. Okay, that's it for another month. Joe's had to nip out, so it's just me to say goodbye. But next month, we'll be focusing on evaluation and learning transfer. So look out for the new magazine and webinars and everything else that we do here at TJ. Until then, take care, and we'll see you very soon.
DJ Podcast is hosted by John Kennard, Joe Cook and Kate Graham. It's produced and edited by me, John Kennard, with additional production by Joe Cook. Title music is by The Leisure All-Stars featuring Yolanda. The sponsorship music is by Audio Nautics and is used under a Creative Commons licence. TJ is a publishing title owned by Dodds Group PLC.